Well, as we think about the tabernacle and the temple, the dwelling place of God, we can talk about a variety of things. We can talk about the tent that was built in the uh, wilderness. And I know that you guys have already seen the irony or the appropriateness of the fact that we're talking about the dwelling place of God. And here we are in the tent, in the tabernacle. And let me just say that someone texted me this morning, and a number of people have said this to me, emailed me, but somebody texted this to me. We are praying for you this morning, Joe, as you teach about the tent from the tent. (laughs) I loved it. So the tent is one of the things that we can talk about as we think about the dwelling place of God. We can also talk about the first temple that was built by Solomon. We can talk about the second temple that was rebuilt and then expanded by Herod. We can also talk about the third temple temple that we read about in Ezekiel. So the question is, what do we do today when we try to tackle this topic? Well, we're going to talk about the first temple of Solomon, where it all, or the building of this began. And uh, because of this, we'll be primarily in 1 Kings chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and then we'll flip to a few other passages. Uh, But as we discuss the first temple, we'll also take a look at a number of images just to show us what it looked like, what the different elements of the temple consisted of and how they functioned so that we see it before our eyes and so that it becomes visible to us. Now, as we do think about the temple... We may immediately ask, how does this relate to us? We don't have a temple right now, right? We don't go to a temple. We haven't had a temple for a few thousand years. So why is it important for us to know about the temple of God? And the answer to this is simple. The temple of God represents the presence of God. The temple expresses God's desire to dwell with mankind, and the desire of mankind to dwell with God. It looks back to the way that it was in the garden when God dwelt with Adam and Eve. It, it presents to us the situation the way God intended it to be and, and the way that it'll be in the future when we're in the presence of God in heaven. We study the temple because we anticipate the time that God will dwell with, uh, with us and when we will dwell with God permanently. That's why we love that song. Maybe it's familiar to to some of you. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And this is taken straight from Psalm 84. We want to experience the presence of God. And because of this, we do look to the temple and we study the various elements of the temple. But let me reiterate that we don't have a temple right now. So it is different for us. So we might ask the question, is God not dwelling among us because we don't have a temple? Well, let me draw your attention just to answer this question briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And this verse says, Do you not know that your body is a temple? Or we can translate it as a sanctuary, which is the holy of holies. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And one commentator said that in the same way that the temple in Jerusalem housed the presence of the living God, 
So the Spirit of God is housed in the believer's body. It is different for us, but there is a very strong parallel. And the parallel is that we're talking about the presence of God, which we all look forward to, which we all long to experience. And when we recognize that God wants to dwell with us, and in this case, he wants to dwell within us, this should prompt us to live in one specific way, and that is to live a holy life, to live a life that is holy before God. So as we look at this temple, at this topic, we'll look at the temple and we'll look at, the th- we'll look at three aspects of the temple. We'll look at specifically the theological significance of the temple. That's where we'll begin. But we'll also look at the technical structure of the temple. And I'll show you some images there so that we see what it looked like inside. And then we'll see the temporary state of the temple and the implications of the fact that the temple was destroyed in the past. Now, when we look at the theological significance of the temple, we see that there are two parts to this, to this significance. The relation of God to man, and that's the presence of God among mankind. And then the relation of man to God, and that's the sacrifices that, that mankind offered within the temple to God. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, and we'll look at various verses from that chapter. Now, as you turn there, let me know that the Israelites knew that the temple was an important part of Israel. When 1 Kings talks about the temple, the building of the temple, it places it as the next most important event after the exodus, the exodus from Egypt. There's two events, the exodus from Egypt, and then the next event in this chapter is that they built the temple. And the fact that it mentions these two events, one right after another, suggests that the temple, the building of the temple, was an important event for them. You know, when I think about my life, there are many events in my life. But the two most important events at this point, outside of my salvation, of course, that would be the most important thing by any uh, standard, but the most two important events are that I was born and that I came to America. Those two events defined my life. There are many other things. I studied in college. I lived in Germany. I uh, lived in Boston. Those are important. I lived in Israel. That's a huge event. But the two events that define my life is my birth and the fact that I came to America. And this is the case with the building of the temple as well. And Solomon expresses this. When he prays to God in 1 Kings chapter 8, he mentions the fact that we came out of Egypt and now we built the temple. We came out of Egypt and now we built the temple. He mentions this several times in verse 16, in verse 22, verse 51, and then in verse 53. So he understands the importance of this event in the history of Israel. So the first thing that the temple represents is the presence of God. The presence of God. Look at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he, or Solomon, began to build the house of Yahweh. One of the most common ways that the Bible refers to the temple is by referring to it as the house of Yahweh. 
In other words, a place where someone dwells, and in this case, a place where Yahweh himself dwells. And you can see this idea that God dwells in the temple all the way at its beginning when the idea was originated with David, when he had the desire to build the temple. This is in 2 Samuel, and you can just listen to this. When David talks about it, the word that he literally uses is house, the house of God. When King David came to Nathan the prophet, he said to him, I want to build this this temple. He said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tents and curtains. And so then they had a conversation, and David said to him, I want to build this house for God. And Nathan said to him, Go ahead, whatever is in your heart, do so. But then God has to become involved, and God speaks to Nathan, and he sends Nathan back to David, and he says the following through Nathan. He says, God says to Nathan, go and say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? David is trying to build a house for God. And that's exactly what the temple is. It is a house in which Yahweh dwells. And so when Solomon builds the temple, Solomon specifically states that this is a house in which Yahweh will dwell. So go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12, just a few pages over perhaps. 1 Kings 8, 12 reads the following. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a thick cloud. Verse 13, I have surely built you, Yahweh, a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then at this time, we see how Yahweh God comes down and he dwells in this house that was built for him. Verse 10 of the same chapter, 1 Kings 8, verse 10, it says, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, The cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. The presence of God in this temple and in this house is the ultimate purpose, and it's the ultimate glory of the temple. And go to the New Testament just in your minds now, This is exactly why Jesus was so upset when the house of God, the temple, was desecrated. In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. The house of God is supposed to be a place of communion between God and man and man and God, but it was being defiled. And as Jesus was seeing and observing this, He was upset by the whole situation, and so he cleansed the temple. So when we think of the temple, we must think of it as a house of God in which God dwells because that's how the Scriptures presented, and that's exactly what it is. But there could be a question as a follow-up. What implications does this have for the Israelites? And this is the second theological significance, the sacrifices to God. 
the sacrifices that the Israelites offered to God. The temple became the central place of sacrifice to God. When Solomon dedicated the temple and he offered sacrifices within it, if we were to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we would read there that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And after God indwelt the temple, God said to, Sam, uh, to Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, God says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now, sacrifice was done both for repentance and for worship. And we can ask the question, what is repentance and what is worship? It's our relationship to God, right? We do this today just as well, just as the Israelites did it uh, in the past, even if we do it slightly differently. And you can think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a very familiar verse to us. Paul says there, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, while we live out our lives of worship by presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, the Israelites lived out their lives of worship also by bringing animals as a sacrifice to God. Now, all of these sacrifices were a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice, that is, the Messiah. They looked forward to the sacrifice, the future coming of the Messiah. But we look back to the sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Messiah. They were waiting for this sacrifice to be completed, but we have already seen the completion of this sacrifice. And as you read the scriptures, you see how this sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament completely consumes the people of Israel. I mean, you have the five sacrifices listed in Leviticus, the first chapters of Leviticus. You have the burnt offering, you have the grain offering, you have the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Then you have those three holiday festivals during which the Israelites would travel to Jerusalem and they would go to the temple and they would make sacrifices there. You have the Passover, which celebrates the Exodus. And you can remember when Jesus and his family, they went to Jerusalem. And of all of the places where Jesus is to be found, he's found in the temple as a 12-year-old child. You have the Shavuot festival or the festival of weeks or, or, or Pentecost, as it's called, which celebrates the wheat harvest and the offering of bread. And you can think to Peter in Acts chapter 2 where he's preaching about the Christ, the Messiah. And he is uh, in the temple at that time, coming in and out of that temple during that festival, preaching to the people about how Christ fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. You have Sukkot, the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And there too in John 7, Jesus goes to the temple in order to celebrate this festival. And then you have the one yearly sacrifice, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, once a year, and he would make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. So you see all of these sacrifices consuming the Israelites as they express their worship to God. 
And as you think about the sacrifice, you see that there was a lot of blood spilled for the people to receive forgiveness for their sins. And this is exactly what the, Bi- what the Bible says, that there will be a lot of blood spilled. Leviticus 17.11 says that it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding blood, there is no forgiveness. So these sacrifices spilled a lot of blood over the years to achieve forgiveness for the sins of the Israelites. But there is a problem, a major problem. These sacrifices could not actually forgive sins. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then this raises the question, how do we receive the forgiveness of sins if the sacrifices cannot achieve this? Well, the sacrifices and the temple, they were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the Messiah who would die and who actually would achieve this forgiveness of sins. This is why Hebrews 10.10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this is exactly what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice that the temple and all of the sacrifices in the Old Old Testament pointed to that would achieve forgiveness. So what happened in the temple looked forward to that final act that would bring us into this permanent presence with God and God's permanent presence with us. But what was in the temple? What function did the elements within the temple have? And this brings us to the second aspect about the temple, and that is the structure of the temple, the way that it looked and the way that it functioned. And as we look at the structure of the temple, you will immediately notice that there are various levels of separation. And the ultimate separation is, of course, into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was uh, abiding more, uh, most, the most. And this, as you think about the separation, the separation indicates the reality that God is holy and that man is sinful. And so man cannot just approach God in his sinful state. This is why Israel needed all of the sacrifices in the temple. This is why the entire humanity needs the forgiveness of sins that are achieved, that is achieved through the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, as we look at the separation, the separations that existed within the temple, some of these elements existed within the first temple, and then some of these elements of separation were instituted in the second temple, so they become clearer there. But all of them point to the fact that there is this strict separation. Now, as you look at the temple mount, where the temple stands, just from the top, kind of a bird's eye view, you will see that 
We have the Temple Mount, and then we have the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles is the point beyond which the Gentiles could not pass. And in Herod's time, there was a sign even at each of those points which said that if any Gentile passes this, they do this at the risk of dying. And you, you go to Ephesians, you think about how Paul talks about the fact that Christ joined the two, uh, two different men, if you will, the Gentiles and the Jews, and Christ removed the barrier of the dividing wall. This was one of the elements that he would have been referring to, this separation between the Gentiles and the Jews. Then you have the court of women, and this is the point beyond which the Israelite women could not enter. Then you have the court of Israel, and this is the point beyond which the men of Israel could not enter then you have the court of the priests, beyond which the priests in general could not enter. There were some special functions, so the priests could go further. But generally speaking, this was the court of the priests. Then you have the holy place when you enter into the temple itself. And this was the specific uh, function of the priests who were selected for this uh, for this duty to go inside and offer various functions, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then, of course, you have the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go in in order to offer that sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel during the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Now, as you step back, and as you look at the temple and at the court of the temple, we see there that there is this large basin, which you see on your left, filled with water, or sometimes it's called the sea, S-E-A, because it was a large body of water, and the priests would use this water in order to cleanse themselves. They would wash their hands and their feet, and then they would head over to the altar where they would offer the sacrifices on a regular basis, day and night, day in and out, the guilt offering, the sin offering, and all of the sacrifices that, were, that are listed in the Old Testament for the Israelites to offer. And then you have the temple itself in front of you. And, you know, the first question that we may ask is, okay, so what was the size of this temple? It's hard for us to imagine it, just seeing it or just reading it. What was the size of it? Well, let's think about it this way. The length of it would have started where the tent drapes fall there, and it would have gone all the way to the back where those poles are, where the tent ends. That would have been the inside of the temple. But that's not it. It goes even beyond that. It, that's about 100 feet, 103 feet. It goes beyond that another 17 feet, and that's where the porch would have been. And if you go outside of this tent, it would be just, you know, seven, 15, 17 feet beyond the point where the tent ends. And then the width of it would have been from this pole to this pole. So I guess these two uh, columns are within the temple. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but this, it would be between these two poles going all the way to the back. That would have been the interior part of the temple. Now, as you look at this, you see the two pillars, right? And these two pillars would have had names. One of them would have been Jachin, and that's the one on the left. And uh, the other one would have been named Boaz, and that's the one on the right. And those names have significances. They actually mean things, those two words. He, Jacob, he 
establishes or he will establish Boaz in strength. Obviously referring to God, the fact that God establishes his practices and his word in strength. And this is exactly what David prayed for in 2 Samuel 7 when God gave him the promise of the Davidic covenant. David prayed that God would keep his word and that the house will be established. And then what you see before you is the porch before you enter into the temple, the actual temple proper. And this porch would have been just that external part of the tent, in this case, before you entered the tent. Then you step inside. And again, the interior would have been from the end of the tent just up to this point, up to these poles, and beyond that would have been the Holy of Holies. When you step inside the holy place, you would see there a variety of elements. One would be the menorahs, the candelabras that would have the candles. And there would be five on each side. They would be all made of gold. And they would be the primary or the only source of light uh, that would be provided within this uh, holy place. You would also see the table for the bread or the showbread or the bread of presence, as it's sometimes called. Literally, it would be the bread or the face bread, the bread that you would eat in the presence of God, before the face of God. And it was laid out in, uh, in sixes so that there would be 12 columns of them so that each column would represent the tribes of Israel. And the priests who were designated for this would come in and they would eat this bread. And then you would look forward and you would see the altar of incense. And this is where the priests would go in on special occasions and they would burn incense. Now, the priests would be selected in a special case, but the offerings, the incense itself, would be offered every day twice, in the morning and at night. And if you think back to or think forward to the New Testament where Zechariah is selected to go into the temple... It says in Luke chapter 1 that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Well, this is where he would have gone, into the holy place, to offer the incense that the special case of priests would have offered. And this is where he saw the angel, where he received the revelation about John the Baptist. So this is where he would have offered that incense to God. And then, if you were to look forward you would see the doors that lead into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, again, is that place where only the high priest would go in, and he would go in there only once a year to offer a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. And so he would go in there, and there would be an uh, Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, he would sprinkle the blood, which would signify the fact that the nation of Israel is forgiven by God. Now, when you look at these doors and you're thinking about the New Testament, I'm certain that you're thinking that we're familiar with the tent, uh, with the veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, not doors, right? And that's the, that was a feature of the second temple. In the second temple, it had a tent. In the fir- it had a veil. In the first temple, it had Doors, And so you can think to the verse where Jesus was crucified. And then it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you can see on the screen the veil torn from top 
to bottom. If you missed it, let me do it again. <laughs> All right, here we go. Eyes on the screen. There it is. All right. The veil is torn from top to bottom. Now, the Holy of Holies would have been a uh, perfect uh, cube where uh, the length, the width, and the height would have been the same. And again, the measurement would have been somewhere from these poles up to the end of the tent in this place. And inside the tent, as you step inside, this is what you would see. You would see two large cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, these two large cherubim, they were massive. I mean, they would extend their wings from one end of the Holy of Holies by, by one cherubim to the middle. And then the second cherub, the wings would touch, and then the wings would extend to the second end of the Holy of Holies. And they would stand there, and they would actually, it says, they would cast a shadow on the place. And beneath these wings, there would be the Ark of the Covenant standing there where the priest, the high priest would enter and he would sprinkle the blood. This would be the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes referred to as the mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle the blood. And on the Ark of the Covenant, you have two additional cherubim standing with their wings touching and looking into the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. What are they looking at? Well, if you think to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, you go back to the passage and you read it, you will see there that it says that the angels would look into the redemption that God provided for mankind. And so here we have a literal expression of the angels looking into the place where, which signified the redemption that God provided for mankind. Now, as we look at this, we could go further and ask the question, so what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Now, you remember from reading the Old Testament that there were the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. Then there was the rod that budded, that, uh, that signified that Aaron and Moses, they were the true representatives of God. And then there was manna that God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness with which he fed them so that they would uh, survive. Now, by the time that uh, uh, Solomon is building the temple, if you read 1 Kings 6, 7, and 8, you will get to the verse in 8, 9, where it says that nothing but the Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant at the point in which he was building the, uh, the temple. So by that time, the, the rod and the manna, they were removed, and only the Ten Commandments re were re uh, retained in this Ark of the Covenant. And as you can see, I have an Ark of the Covenant right here. It was given to me as a gift. I invite you afterwards to come and open it, if you dare, to look inside. <laughs> to see what's inside. And I do ask you, please do not take it. Otherwise, you will get boils, okay? <laughs> but do come and take a look at it. It's a very special gift. When I spoke at Sojourners, one of the dear Sojourners gave it to me as a gift, and it's precious. It's just a great, uh, great image of what we study 
in the Bible. So as you see, as you think about the temple, as you think about the holy of holies, you see that there are many separations within the temple and even within the court of temple. And this separation signifies the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And there's only one solution to this separation, and that's the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is why we have to trust specifically in Jesus and nothing else. Because the veil was torn specifically when Jesus died. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death. And he was the one who gave us access into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, to the Father except through me. After thousands and thousands of sacrifices and after so much blood being spilled, the wrath of God could not be satisfied by those, those sacrifices. Only the blood of the Messiah, Jesus, sacrificed, uh, satisfied the wrath of God and provided this forgiveness of sins for us. But before Christ came, we do see how this temple served as a place for God to be present in a unique and a special way among his people. Now, this does raise another question. The temple did not stand forever. And you know this, the temple was destroyed. So we want to ask, does this mean that the presence of God was temporary? And this brings us to the third point, the third aspect about the temple. And that's its temporary state. And there's no way to get around it. The temporary state of the temple means that God is among his people in a special, relational way, only temporarily. Of course, God is omnipresent. So God is always present everywhere. He's always involved in all things. But in the special way that was provided through the temple, it was temporary. In 1 Kings 8, 9, and 10, we saw that the glory of God came down and it dwelt within the temple. But after many years of disobedience on the part of the Israelites, there came exile. And at the time of, the time of exile, we read in Ezekiel 10 how he has a vision and how the glory of God departs from the temple. So the first temple that Solomon built was destroyed because the people of Israel sinned. Then they came back from exile and they began to rebuild the temple. So the second temple was built by Zerubbabel and Joshua and Ezra and Nehemiah and they restored the, the practices within the temple. And then the temple was expanded by Herod and Jesus would go into that temple. And there was one time when Jesus was walking with his disciples, and one of his disciples said to him, this is in Mark chapter 13, he said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings looking at the temple. And Jesus said to him, Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he spoke about the future time when the temple would be destroyed. And then came A.D. 70. And in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. And so now Judaism has a commemoration, a day of remembering the destruction of the temple 
called Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. And so on Tisha B'Av, they, uh, the Jewish people lament and they think back to the first temple and to the second temple and how both of these temples were destroyed. But this temporary state of the temple does make us wonder, will God ever dwell with us permanently? And so we go to Ezekiel, and you get to the end of Ezekiel, and you read about the third temple during the millennium. So we can answer that we will experience that special presence of God within the millennium when the temple will be restored, especially because Christ will be reigning at that time for 1,000 years. And if you go to the very end of Ezekiel, chapter 48, verse 35, you see that the city gets a title, and the title is Yahweh Shammah, which means Yahweh is there. In other words, Yahweh dwells there in Jerusalem in the temple. But will there be a temple in our eternal state with Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium? And we can go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, to see the answer to this. Revelation 21 speaks about the new heaven and the new earth. And then verse 22 says, John is speaking, he says, I saw no sanctuary, no temple generally speaking, but sanctuary specifically, the Holy of Holies. I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. So this is what awaits us in eternity, in the future. There will be no temple in the new heaven and the new earth because we will not need a temple. The temple was a shadow of the permanent relationship that we would experience with God in the new heaven and the new earth. And when we get to that point, this really will be the fulfillment of Emmanuel. God is with us. God is dwelling with us. So let me conclude with just this one thought coming full circle. When Solomon was building the temple, the physical temple, he prayed to God in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, and he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Solomon was right. God is too great to, to dwell in a temple that was built by human hands. And so when we get to the new heaven and to the new earth, there will be no temple because we will be in the presence of God permanently without any interruption. This is what awaits us in eternity. Let me pray. Let us thank God for the fact that he has given us the scripture so that we can see this and we can understand this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we're able to look into your scriptures, that we're able to understand the things that you have left for us, that we're able to see how you interacted with mankind in the past from the time of the Garden of Eden, through the times that mankind has been sinful, through the temples, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that we now understand and we see how 
In the future time, you will be with us, dwelling in our presence, Lord, and we will be in your presence without interruption permanently. We do look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that understanding this and seeing this in in your scripture would affect us even today, that it would cause us to live holy lives and that it would cause us to look forward and to look ahead so that no obstacle, so that no challenge, so that no difficulty on this earth would detract us, Lord, from looking at you and looking to that time when we will be with you in your presence permanently. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus, thanking you for all of the things that you have revealed to us. Amen.